0: Welcome to episode 7 of The Process. Choose love, trust the process. Hey. Everything for you. Give you all
1: of me. What if I give you all of me? If I give you all of me, would I get all of you? If I told you I'm anointed, could you see the proof? Give my heart and soul for you when I'm inside the booth. Feel my love, feel my pain when I'm inside the booth Would you switch a change on me if you knew the truth? Knowing I ain't the same person that was introduced Thank the Lord cause I don't look like what I've been through Here's a letter to you I'm back again Jesus on that cross, I had to rise again Time to get my blessings, time to get my blessings I had to live my life, I had to learn my lessons I had to keep that smile, but deep inside I'm stressing Trying to keep my spirits from that deep depression. It's time to tighten up. Put my pride down
0: and pick that Bible up. Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 7 of The Process. I'm Omonte. And I'm Quavon Taylor. Today we have Ms. Del Reese Martin. Thank you for joining us, Ms. Martin.
2: Glad to be here. Tell people
0: about where you're from.
2: I am from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I grew up in, off of, right off of Broward Boulevard, one of the primarily, primarily black neighborhoods of Fort Lauderdale. By 31st, formerly known as, or known by the community as Parkway 794. Um, so yeah, I'm born and raised in Fort Lauderdale.
0: So, so tell the people what
2: it was like growing up in Parkway. Growing up in Parkway, it was the hood, but it was great. So it was the, our, most of the majority of the neighborhood. I would say all of the neighborhood was African-American. And, you know, when I was growing up, we grew up in a house that was my grandma's house. Um, but I lived there. My mom lived there. Brothers, cousins, uncle, all of us under grandma's roof. And so as a kid, it was great because you always had somebody to keep you company. I didn't really need friends because I always had cousins at home. <laughs> and so, um, and community wise, because it was the black community, you know, everybody knew everybody. So we had crackheads, we knew their names. We, we knew who their mom was, we knew who their dad was. We know with that they slept under the carport at night at such a such house. We knew each other. And during that time, because everyone knew everyone, a lot of us, because it is South Florida, we had screen doors. So you could leave the main door open and you could fall asleep with the screen door and the porch just open and the main door open as the night fell. And a lot of us sat on the porch. I could ride my bike wherever, you know. But as I started getting older, the community definitely changed. The older people who owned the home started getting old, dying off. And there was just a dynamic. I would say things kind of got worse. There was also less African-Americans in the community and a higher immigrant population in the community. So things just changed a lot. And it became less of a community environment more than a low-income, poverty-stricken neighborhood. And became more of a low-income, poverty-stricken neighborhood.
0: So what was a major hurdle you had to overcome uh, growing up in Parkway or just growing up, you know, in your neighborhood?
2: So we started out at my grandma's house. Um, My mom was a single mom. I didn't really know my dad until I turned the age of 10. After questioning my mom a little bit, she was able to find him um, by doing a search online, I believe. And she located him at the Broward County Jail. (laughs) And so I began letter communications with him back and forth at jail in jail um just telling him how excited I was it was about nine or ten to know who my dad was to finally get to meet him um so we went to visit however I couldn't because I was too young however when he was released he sent for me and I went spent two weeks in Jamaica getting to know him um but other than that he was so busy as a doing whatever in Jamaica, so I, I I didn't really have that much of a relationship with him other than on the phone. Um, but I did also get to meet a lot of siblings that I became very, very close with, uh, especially my brother who just passed away in December because we were pretty much the same age. Um, and so it was rough for my mom. As a single mother, she drove school buses, so she, that was all she had to provide for my brother and I. I had one brother on my mother's side as well, Danny. Um, and so, growing up, my brother, my mom, and I at my grandma's house, who was also like my other family. And my mom made it work the best she could. One thing I always remember about my mom was her telling me over and over again, right in the planner. Write your budget down, write your goals down, or stay organized and on what you need to do so that you can, you know, have a better future. And I ignored that, but I always watched her do it. I mean, she would pull out every color highlighter, <laughs> different color pens, and go to work with her budget for the month, her plans for the month, her goals, and she would check off, literally sitting at the kitchen table, check off as she go, which eventually led to us getting a home. Um, And we literally moved around the corner from my grandma's house in the same neighborhood (laughs) in a house. So that was a big accomplishment, you know, as a single black mother um, to be able to move out on her own with her two kids and afford her own house. Um, And we were renting, but it was like more of like a rent to own kind of thing. Still remember the landlord and her struggles with him, but she always paid the rent. Um, Now, other bills, we fell short. A lot of the times, the lights would go off. We would use a candle to get ready for school. You know, whatever we had to do. But one thing we can say is that we had a roof over our head and we had food in the fridge, regardless. And no government assistance. My mom made it happen with what she could. Um, And so that was difficult. But it also, she didn't hide anything from me. If the lights were going off, she would just say, hey, you know, when I get paid, they'll come back home. And so we have understood the struggle and we also saw our mother go through the struggle, you know, unapologetically, like I'm doing my best. Um, and so with that, you know, it was difficult, but it taught me a lot. But watching my mother struggle and uh, uh, having her be so candid with us, it, it, it instilled some serious life lessons in me that lasted even throughout her diagnosis with HIV, and then her death from AIDS. So we moved into the house. I was around, I think I was going in, I was almost done with fifth grade. By the time I was entering sixth grade, no, seventh grade, we noticed that my mother was losing a lot of weight. She was in, we were still in this house, but she was back and forth to the doctor a lot. Um, And we just noticed that she was getting really small. But she was still her upbeat, organized, disciplinarian self, trying to handle things, you know. And she thought, okay, it's the bus fumes. Maybe I'm, I'm you know, I'm being exposed to the bus fumes so much is making me really sick. Um, then she thought, okay, she had some metal plate put in her, her gums when she was a child. She thought, okay, maybe they're riding and making me sick. She's like, kept saying that her equilibrium was off. She's having a lot of headaches. But she, for so many years, she didn't know what was wrong with her, and um, we didn't know. We were just kind of like asking, and just trying to be supportive. Like, gosh, she's losing weight uh, really fast. By my eighth grade year, she was smaller than me, and uh, but she was still being a mother. You know, she was still make, taking me school shopping. She was still attending all of my sport events, all of my cheerleading practices. She was still a team mom on Saturday mornings making cheer bags for the girls. She was still at my track meet. She was still being there, but slowly, very, very dying because she was very, very sick. Um, And so this hurdle got even bigger because right on my three days after my 16th birthday, she succumbed to AIDS. Um, My assumption is A lot of misdiagnoses because of the advancement of the medicine, there's no way my mother would have allowed herself to get so sick without accepting the diagnosis and getting treatment. My my assumption is that a lot of misdiagnoses led to the prolonging of the virus, which then took over and turned into the disease of AIDS. Um, and so, if, if you don't know that there's a two-step process, but if you have HIV, you find out, you can treat it. However, if you don't, it'll get stronger and become AIDS, and then it'll truly to death. And so, three days after my 16th birthday, my junior year of high school, my mother passed away. But before that, I and mean, I skipped this part, we she was still trying to keep the house, but then she could no longer work. So then, no longer work became her not being able to work became her no longer being able to provide for us at all. By this time, my brother, you know, had a child on the way. He is done. He was done with high school. He was ready to move on with his life. He was engaged, um, and so she made it to my brother's wedding. She saw my. Um, she was able to see. I think the first year of my nephew's life, um, but she. She did everything she could to be a mother and to work hard and provide for her. Until so she could not no more, she just had to quit her job. Um, and then it turned into needing unemployment checks. The unemployment checks wouldn't last long because you know, the process, I don't know if you know the process of trying to get unemployment. You have to apply, then you have to wait. But in the midst of all that, she's sick and I'm still a child that she needs to provide for. And so that was her struggle. And one of the hardest things we had to do was pack up the house and move back in with my grandma. Because she has took so much pride in being able to move us out into our own place that it was difficult for her to say, damn, we gotta go back, you know? It, it felt like, I, I'm assuming for her, and just from what I could see, she just was really sad. It, it felt like nothing was working out despite all of the years and the savings and taking me, showing me her the savings account and all the goals that she had set, here we are back at square one, back at grandma's house. And then while at my grandma's house, probably like my eighth grade, ninth grade years, um, her health started deteriorating even more. Um, And in that instance, my grandmother and I became very instrumental in taking care of her. My grandmother and I, so it felt like a responsibility of ours to just kind of take care of her and um, just kind of be there. So a lot of the times before school, that night before, my mom was little been rushed to the ER, sick again, like three o'clock in the morning. I got school at seven, but another person who was instrumental in my life was my uncle Roger. He picked me up from the hospital and take me home, get dressed, then take me to school. And a lot of my high school days were like that. I get home. I was class president, but after my little class meeting, then band practice, the children in practice, I come home, go to the hospital, then go back home, do it all over again. A lot of that was my life throughout those years. Um, So back at grandma's house, my mom was still even as she was getting sicker and sicker, trying to be a mother. So she applied for Section 8 housing. She applied for Section 8 housing. Eventually, we got into another house. She was able to get us a house, this governmental census this time. Um, but un- unfortunately, this is about the end of my tenth grade year, eleventh grade year, she was unable to see the fruits of her labor. And as my grandmother and I, as always, were moving stuff into the house, the new house that she got for us, I was excited. I was like, Oh yeah, i get my new room again. As we were moving all the luggage in, because my mom was too weak to get out of the bed at this point, the landlord for that home called the police on us. And he said, there's someone going to my house, and I don't know who they are. The neighbors have reported that they've been coming back and forth. This crazy man who just can't popped up at the house saying, you need to take them to jail. They're, they're, you know, they're breaking into my home. And my mom was on the phone like out of breath she can't really talk but she's trying to explain this man gave me a house key he told me that we could move in and so the police are on the phone with my mom my grandma and I are out there I'm crying I'm at this point I'm like 16 14 15 and I'm explaining you know my mom is sick you know this man gave us the key he told us we could move in and everything was good to go however now we're being interrupted and it was just me and my grandma all by ourselves unloading the car Unloading the van, trying to move stuff into the house. And so it was just another big punch in the face for my mom of her journey of trying to get some independence for us. And so the police, I'll never forget this police officer because my grandma explained to him the situation with my mother's health and the struggle it was for her to try to provide a home for me, you know, as I'm, I'm trying to finish up school. And he told me, he said, you know what? This guy's an idiot. Don't worry about it. I had a brother who passed away from AIDS. So I know what you're going through, but just keep your head up and stay positive and it's gonna get better. And literally those words in that moment with all that I was going through was so relieving to me because it just showed me, for one, it redirected my focus from, here we go back to grandma's house a a second time (laughs) to, All right, I'll just be patient. Something else is along the way, it's gonna get better. Right after that incident, we moved all the stuff back to my grandma's house that my grandma and I had unloaded with the help of my boyfriend Eddie at the time. We moved it all back to my grandma's house. Within a few weeks, my mother was rushed to the ER and she never came out. And so I feel like that was the last stressful incident that took her. She was already weak at this point, immobile. You know, we were rushed to, the, she was rushed to the ER and she never made it out. You know, first she started having mental, eluc- what do you call it, hallucinations um, and just seeing things and she's just in the hospital, just really, really losing it. She was very much, she was very small, way smaller than me, way smaller than she ever been. And uh, within a few, within a few weeks after that, she was in the ICU. In ICU, she wasn't really responding. Um, there's one story, though, my uncle Roger, the guy who I said he was basically like a father figure to me, she wasn't talking to anyone. They were no longer feeding her. She was just kind of in ICU, waiting on her her her, her death, basically. They real they decided there's nothing else that they could do, um, but so she wasn't responding to me. I was by her bed. I had brought a picture of me in my band uniform, my dance uniform, because I was dance captain at the time, or dance co-captain, and just showing her pictures. But she just kind of out of it. However, when my uncle Roger walked in the room, she looked at me, and then she looked at him, as if to tell him, hey, take care of her. Please take care of my baby, and since then, you know, And even before then, from elementary school to that point and forward, I could always depend on my Uncle Roger. And he knew that that was a moment of her trying to communicate with him that I'm worried about her, but I, I know that I can trust you with being there for her. And he has, and I really appreciate him for that. And so that situation <laughs> was my junior year of high school. Um, it was rough. From then, it was on my grandma house or whatever I had, sleeping on the mattress, until my uncle Ricky got me a bed from somebody he cleaned the house for. (laughs) And then uh, going throughout my junior year, co-captain, still class president, still, you know, being myself. I suppressed a lot of the pain because when my mom passed, she had struggled so much, I was just happy that she could finally relax. But I, didn't th- I hadn't dealt with my own sadness of losing a mother at the age of being so young. Um, and so I went through my senior year of high school, became class president again. At this time, I was dance captain of a totally new team with uh, I think it was 11 girls. And I just kind of went on as if life was great. Um, I had a lot of support from the band and like just people in my community who know who I what I had gone through. But it was the morals and the the hard work. And my mom exposing me to so many things that she was struggling with that taught me how to persevere. It taught me how to push through and not rely on anything as an excuse of why I can't make it. And so still to this day, I use that to get over hurdles. Whenever I want to give up, whenever I feel like things are too hard, I look back on my mom's struggles as a single mother. Here I am with a husband and a lot of resources, degrees. My mom had nothing. She didn't she didn't go to college. Well, she went to college for a little bit, but she didn't have degrees. She didn't have a husband. She had to work with what she had. And so I use that to avoid excuses in my life right now and push through.
0: <sighs>
1: because too like, you know, I grew up in the house with my grandma and the grandma in the grandma house too. That was a big one. That showed a lot of strength. That showed a lot of courage, you know what I'm saying, to become the person you are today. Because now, you ain't got your your mom. Mm -hmm. That connection, you know what I'm saying, like, it's difficult. I know that's difficult.
2: It's definitely difficult, you know, and, you know, right now, my grandma, literally before I came down to Miami, I was wrestling with what decision to make, you know, for the summer. As law student, as a law student, you go into your second, you're going to your second summer and you want to try to go somewhere that's going to offer you a long-term job. Or at least that's the idea, but it's not necessarily always the case. However, I decided to go to Miami and um, intern. My grandmother was diagnosed with lung cancer around the same time. And so when you talk about going through things without having a mother, my grandmother was my mother. You know, as soon as my mom passed, my grandma was given guardianship of me, and you know, we moved out of the house. One blessing that came from that was we were able to keep the section eight. say, forget it to that guy and move into an apartment in a lot of I changed neighborhoods, um, and so my grandma and I had a two-bedroom apartment in a lot of and life was good. My grandma did every single thing she could to fill the void of me not having a mother and a father. You know, along with the help of my uncle here and there. But my grandmother, um, she feels on shoes. So I could even hint at Grandma I need. And before you know it, she's picking up the phone. I'm like, Grandma, what are you doing? (laughs) And before you know it, I have it. Well, I had to ask because you wouldn't ask, you know. So Grandma was always my mom. And still to this day, you know, with her going through her struggle with lung cancer, and now they found growth in her throat even after she she got through the cancer surgery. Um, I can't talk to her. I can't call her because she's going through a lot. So that has been difficult for me because she's my outlet. When I wanna pick up the phone and call her, call someone that's a mother figure, I call her to vent, to to talk about what I'm going through. So that's been difficult for me lately because I haven't been able to. But my grandma has definitely been my mom, she's been a mom to me. I just thought of all that, you know, went on with my mom. Well,
0: so think about, you know, while you're in middle school, high school, and you're dealing with your mom's sickness, while she's trying to provide, and you're, you know, participating in extracurricular activities, you're in school. You know, How were you as a student? What did you do outside of school, you know, to cope with what was going on at home?
2: You know, school was my outlet. <laughs> I did so much at school, especially going into my junior, senior year. My mom taught me to be very resourceful and observant and go after what I needed. If I knew I needed something, I better go figure it out or else she's going to chew me out because I didn't take the time to go question and ask. (laughs) And so a, a lot of that led me into her being sick and not even being able to be there in that regard, even though she tried. And so my guidance counselor office, my scholarship, Miss Hardiman's scholarship resource office. I was always going in there. You got any new scholarships? To the point where other parents were thinking that she was giving me scholarships. like, no, I would go in there every time they would refresh the batch. I would go in there and say, hey, you got anything new? And so I spent my time a lot with teachers. Ms. Brody, she was the dance auxiliary coach. Um, and so just talking with her, and you know, dance. Like I said, I was dance co-captain my junior year, dance captain my senior year. So I was always at band practice. I mean, you get out of school, we walk to McDonald's or walk to the corner store, get some junk, and then we got band practice like at three o'clock. School get out at like two. We know we got to be back and it's set by three o'clock. And so, and then band practice didn't get out until about five. And then. When band practice got out, sometimes we had if it was a big season or a big show like solo or something like that, we didn't get out until like eight o'clock. And so, not to mention, you know, I had student, I had a class officer meetings as class president, planning events, planning our end of the year prom, planning, you know, grad bash. So I was so caught up in school, I didn't have to talk about what was going on at home because I just had so much going on at school. And that kept me focused on something else. It gave me something else to look forward to. It gave me something else to um, put my energy into, as well as church. Um, and so, a lot of the times, I was just in, I was in band practice. And then they, by my senior year, we had a competition team for cheerleading, so you were able to try out to compete. And so, then I joined the competition team for cheerleading. And so. I was just really busy with school <laughs> that kept me balanced and grounded you got to find an outlet when you're going through things at home you got to do what you can just find an outlet and find something else that you enjoy for my life and is you know in memory with my mom she was always supporting me and cheerleading so for since I was like four or five years old I was cheerleading Oh, and I also was a bowler because my whole family bowled from my grandma to my mom to my aunt. My, aunt, my uncle's a coach. He's known like all throughout South Florida and coaches and the state of Florida. He, he coaches bowling. And so Saturday mornings, I was still bowling. We had an annual tournament every year. So, you know, busy with extracurricular activities in school and bowling on Saturday mornings. I had no time to really think about what I was going through. I just kept pushing.
0: How does that feel So you're
2: very involved, as you explained. So how did that feel to lose that main support, that chief in your life? Losing my biggest supporter, my mom, was one of the hardest things that I still struggle with. You know, and of course I'm going to sound raspy because it's going to be hard to hold back tears. Because this is something that I still struggle with. It's nothing that you can explain to anyone until you have to go through losing a mother to understand what it feels like. <clears throat> it's not something that you can explain. And so even to this day, when I have major life events, from having my son, thank God my grandmother was there, to graduating from high school, to graduating from undergrad, to getting my master's degree to now being in law school and about to graduate from there, sometimes it's hard to <clears throat> enjoy those accomplishments because you don't have the one who was there from the beginning holding those parent-teacher conferences just to, make, to know why I wasn't getting A's. Or the one who, if I wasn't getting A's, she was asking me and making sure that the teacher was monitoring me, and staying on top of me, and teaching me the importance of school, and discipline, and hard work, and so for her to not be here to see the fruits of the labor, oh, and marriage, you know, hey, mom, I'm married, I can't say that, I can't pick up a phone and call her, but, so it's hard, it's hard, and I think that's something that I will never get better at dealing with, I just always need a moment, like, After every big accomplishment, I always need a moment to just pause and just cry and just, you know, talk about and think about how much I wish she was here with me. Because no matter how much, you know, support you get, there's nothing like having the support of your mother, especially when you have a mother like mine. My mom was so dedicated to me that losing her and going through these accomplishments without her, it hurts. Every time, and there's nothing that I can put on that. There's no band aid, there's no formula, there's nothing <laughs> that will replace her not being here to enjoy these things with me. You know, but I know you know they say she's watching now, she is. I'm sure she is. I'm sure she's up there cheering and saying congratulations. But I can't look in her eyes and show her as I always did when I was little, you know, and see that she's proud of me. I can't do that, I can't call her. You know, I can't have her throughout the process. I'm just, you know, trying to make it with everything that she instilled in me from day one.
0: So after, you know, losing your mom, you were involved in, I mean, before, prior to and after losing your mom, you were involved in a lot of extracurricular activities. You said you were class president, you were captain, you graduated of the class. You know, what did you do next? What was next for Miss Dale, young Dale Reese?
2: Mm -hmm. Well, like I said, I stayed in the scholarship, Ms. Hartman's office. She was uh, like the, the career resource counselor. And um, my next thing, the next big accomplishment was me being awarded the Gates Millennium Scholarship. <clears throat> when I got that scholarship, I was in the house in the apartment with my grandma. I got this big old box in the mail. My grandma's like, I didn't open this one. Because we usually fuss because she was opening my mail. <laughs> Even though I was still 17. We were like, grandma no, don't open my mail. She's like, well, I didn't open this one. So was a huge box on my bed. <clears throat> like, huge box. Um, And I'm like, this says Gate Millennium. Well, it can't be a denial if it's a box this big. So I opened it, and of course, it was a congratulations and from that moment forward, I was screaming, my grandma was screaming, she crying, she called calling the whole, everybody she knew. <laughs> and I knew with that scholarship, I had the opportunity to go anywhere I wanted. Um, one of the schools I wanted to go to was Selma, but I never applied because I was just too scared to leave Florida, too afraid. So I applied to UCF, UF, and FSU. I got into all three. And you know, honestly, on a college tour, I, I toured US, <laughs> I toured FSU, and I toured Sammy. I toured a lot of schools. Um, um, but something about FSU stuck out to me. Their care program caters to minority students. And so it provided a familiarity that was comfortable to me. And from there, I just knew that's where I was headed. Now, always being a, I was a class president since seventh grade. And so I always knew that I loved public speaking. I had no shame in advocating for people who I felt were being mistreated. So I knew I wanted to go to law school, but FSU didn't have a pre-law program. So I said, "Well, in the meantime, what else do I like?" I've always been great at math. Of course, you know accounting is not math, but at least in my mind, I'm like, "Okay, I'm good at math. The accounting is good." Not took an accounting course in high school, so I said, "All right, I'm major in accounting." It was a big struggle because. Not only was I dealing with being away from my home for the first time, it was though we had the care care program, you know, in my county program, I was often one of maybe two black people, so it was kind of a culture shock, you know, at FSU. Still, even though we had the care resources, so there were a lot of things I struggled with um, pursuing my undergraduate degree. However, I made it through. Um, met. Amate along the way. <laughs> we got engaged in March in March of twenty thirteen. And then before you know it, we were married. And I right after graduation, got married, moved to Iowa for the summer. That was our honeymoon because Amate had an internship with Monsanto. And after that we went to Purdue. Um, because that's where Amate was Um, enrolled for graduate school. At Purdue, I finished up my CPA hours. So I was still in school. And by that December, I finished up my CPA hours to become an accountant and then sit for the CPA accounting exam. That's the certified public accounting exam. I thought that I I was pregnant. (laughs) So in the meantime, I just got an accounting internship. That's next spring had our son in May. And then I said, you know what? This case Millennium Scholarship will pay for a master's degree. Let me go ahead and enroll. (laughs) So by the fall of 2016, I enrolled in school and graduated from Purdue that following summer. That transition from there was rough because Amante was still not done with his thesis, but I had already got accepted to UF, got a scholarship, and school was starting in the fall. We had a young one, but I had to start school, and so for that fall semester, um, I left to come to Florida, back to Florida, and Amante, being the amazing man that he is, finished his master's thesis all while raising our son and by himself. And I started school, um, law school at the University of Florida.
1: When did you know you wanted to be a lawyer?
2: I knew I wanted to be a lawyer um, from, I feel like it was always in me. I always had, because thanks to my grandma and my mom, we always loved, you know, representing and speaking up for the smaller person. My grandma, she could be anywhere. And if she sees something that's not right, (laughs) she's going to step up and say something about it. No no matter where she is, she's just fearless. My mom is the exact same way. In addition to that, my mom had the skills of advocacy as well. You know, there were issues going on her job and many bus drivers. I can remember a time she held a meeting in the living room where bus drivers would come and tell her their complaints which led to her writing a letter on behalf of everyone that was sent to the school board and brought change to their school bus um to the school bus uh location down here in broward and so just seeing that advocacy and that fearlessness and that it was never a question of whether to do the right thing but it was always when. you know that along with me being pretty skilled at public speaking. Like I said, you know, being class president for a long time, I've always been the person behind the the microphone speaking to my class and, you know, being able to speak up for other people has always been a thing I've been passionate about because it was just instilled in me from my mother and my grandmother. And so for, since I was young, I knew that being a lawyer was the perfect career path for me. When did you know you
1: could do it? And when did you gain confidence knowing that you could practice law?
2: I knew that I could do it when all hell broke loose around my son turning one years old. He got chronic ear infections and just became very sick to the point where he couldn't even breathe out of his nose. And I look back on Instagram videos and hear him talk, it's just he's so wheezy. <laughs> and he's trying to talk and sing, but you could just hear him breathing hard. He has sleep apnea. All of these things just hit as a result of a lot of things that went on at Purdue. Um, but you know, by the time like right before my one L, the first year he called the one L. So I went through fall, worried the whole time about him. But, you know, due to finances and other things, not being able to get to him in Indiana, as my husband's telling me about, okay, we're back at the doctor. He's sick again. You know, I'm sick. He's, my husband's sick now because of the conditions. And all of these things of allergies and sinus infections and ear ear infections and constantly the doctor doesn't know what's wrong, why he keeps getting sick. And so when we got down here in December, I was so grateful. I made it through my one year with all of that. And then by December, January, my son was being told, we were being told that he had to get surgery. And so I'm going into my second semester of my 1-0 year with this on my mind, like, my baby, my 1-year-old, he got to get surgery? He got to get all these things removed out of his head? Like, what? You know, but dealing with that and trying to master constitutional law with people who don't understand because they don't have kids, well, professors who aren't very as sensitive because they don't have children or, you know, it's the practice of law, so suck it up and deal with it. That is when I knew I could do it. My son made it through surgery. I made it through final exams. We were good. My first year of law school, the toughest year of law school, the year that's supposed to set the foundation for everything to come upon graduation, everything. I'm still participating in class. I'm in the hospital, but I'm still outlining. I'm in the hospital, but I'm still reading books. And so I, you know, whatever opinions i built around me, I knew I could do whatever I put my mind to because of the hell I went through my first year, not just the law school. The law school hell wasn't nothing compared to worrying that my baby is gonna make it through this surgery. You know, I'm dealing with this. I'm not going out to, you know, thirsty Thursdays or getting drunk or whatever that law students do that we don't talk about. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm at home, I'm worried about my baby, I'm taking care of my baby. And then my grandma too was even there with every step of the way of that as well as Montes family. And so Amate's side of the family. And so that is when I knew going into my second year, I could do it. My son made it through surgery, I made it through uh, exams and I didn't get any shortcuts despite what went on. No, no one said, hey, do you need more time? Can I, you know, administration, can can, I, can we give you more time? No, there was no, it's just the nature of law school. Suck it up, get it done. And I did. And so going into summer, you know, they had write-on competitions. I still went out for the moot court team. I didn't do the write the journal, but I still went out for the moot court team. I still put, I still did everything I could to give my all. And that's the best that you can do. That's when you, when you know, The whole question of when did I know I could do it is when I refused to not give my best. And I did. Now, even though I didn't make certain things, I still gave my best and handled and juggled all that I had going on. My second year of law school, I was even stronger. I made better grades, of course, because I wasn't dealing with as much of my head. My son's still sick. But I didn't have surgery to be afraid of, you know. My my husband was entering his PhD program, you know, so it was a lot still going on. But but that confidence of that first year struggle, overcoming that first year struggle, showed me that I could do it. Um and so now I'm going into my third year and we just decided found out that we're now fifteen pre- fifteen weeks pregnant with our second child. And so I have no fears. I'm, I'm ready to see what third year and graduation looks like. And then the bar exam. So I know that I can do it now. And it all entails the spirit of excellence, doing everything with the spirit of excellence and putting my best foot forward. I've been through so much in my life. Like the only person that can stop me at this point is myself.
1: What advice would you give to someone who is interested into going to law school?
2: The advice I would give someone interested in going to law school is good luck. (laughs) It is hell. And, you know, a lot of people aren't going to be as honest with you about how much hell it is. But it is. You have to deal with um, social networking. You have to deal with, you know, building connections with people because your peers and your classmates will one day become attorneys and judges and whoever so you have to deal with, uh, you know, different personalities who are all very strong-minded, just like you. You were once the top of your class, well, so were they. So you have—that's a struggle. We talk about that all the time, but until you're faced with seeing other people who are just as intelligent and who are just as determined, who are also just as strong-headed, and who want to have the right answer as well, it, it's a different type of environment. It's like a jungle, basically. Like, my, my criminal law professor said, lawyer's a barracuda. And either you're going to fight back or you're going to get eaten. And that's basically how it is. So that's just a general overview of what law school is like. You know, they may talk about, oh, it's just going to be fun. To me, there's nothing fun about law school other than, you know, some of the friendships you build. But it's such a learning process. You know, you have to learn how to read a lot of... Not necessarily read, because sometimes you have to skim certain things, but you have to be smart about it and strategic in certain classes. But which class will require me to read a little more? Which class requires me to be strategic about how I read? And then when do I start outlining? So be resourceful, ask questions. If you see someone doing well? Ask them for outlines. Ask them what they did to do well. I didn't know that because like I said, I had so much hell going on my first year. I, the only thing I could do was worry about my family. But to a year, I started to realize, okay, I really need to reach out, get outlines, talk to the people who've done well, you know, and really understand the people who were successful, what was their process. So that is very important. Talking to people, building those connections, joining groups and getting outline-based um, and knowing that you're going to struggle. You're gonna to have to make some serious sacrifices. You can't hang out late. And also, you need to balance, you know. Yes, you can go out from time to time. But once October hit, it's just straight work, you know. And go hard from the beginning. Someone told me that, but then I heard a lot of people say, no, you can wait to out- start outlining. No, from day one, start outlining. Start consolidating cases and knowing your stuff and reviewing it on the weekends. Because that's the only way you're going to have time to be successful by learning so much information and then spitting it out. And follow what the teacher does. If there's a teacher style, professor style, that's how you need to write. This professor may be conservative, well then your paper needs to sound conservative. That professor may be more liberal on the issue. If that issue comes up, you need to be as liberal as possible with citing all the case law on that issue. And so law school is so much about strategy, networking and playing the game. And that game is a mental game of Yeah, they're smart, but so am I. So let me just focus on me. That's the game. Focusing on yourself and finding people who've done well and mimicking what they're doing, but they did, but putting your own spin on it. How do you balance being a wife,
1: a mother, and a law school student? I know that can be tough.
2: You know, it's tough, but it's also about priority and having a teammate, you know. People have hashtags, team whatever, no. No. My husband and I, we have hashtag team Martin 14. And <laughs> it's literally a thing. That's something I learned from my mentor too. You have to look at everything as a team. If you don't hold up your end of the stick, the whole team loses, you know? And so by having such a supportive teammate, a real teammate, a husband, you know, I'm able to do a lot of things. We have a schedule, like, okay. You know that I'm a morning person, so I'll get the baby this time. But when you get up, you know it's your time and so on and so forth. That's how we manage things. And then we come together and do things together as well. And sometimes that schedule is not always as perfect. And so it's a matter of being understanding, doing what you have to do on your time and then making time for everything else you need to do when your time is up. And so <clears throat> that's really how I do it, having a supportive husband. I'm able to, you know, do, do a lot and attend things and be, be, be in different positions as a law student as well, contributing to other organizations and, um, prioritizing, you know, I take my role and, you know, it's funny because a lot of our generation is so against Christianity and what it means to be a submitting wife and to be in a quote unquote role because we've been like you know, I don't know. I think social media has played a lot into people's influences and it's influenced them away from the Bible, basically. But that that's not me. I don't follow that mess. So I really take a lot of, you know, confidence and I prioritize and I do my best to pray to be a better wife, to pray to learn how to be quiet sometimes, <laughs> to learn how to... Think about ways that I'm supporting my husband when I'm looking so much for him to support me. And am I being selfish on this issue or am I being support? You know, I think about that. So it's a conscious thing. Just as much as studying is, being a wife is just as much of a a task and a a duty, an assignment from God. I asked for this. I wanted this, this, this marriage. So I prioritize it as best I can through prayer, learning. I try to also follow. I'm inspired by a lot of other successful wives and seeing what they do and how they do things. And, you know, you you can only be yourself, but some things that I see from social media or whatever, you know, because I know everything is not real. I like certain shows like Marriage to Medicine, and they talk about marriage a lot. You know, those types of things that are, um, that speak positively of marriage. I try to feel my my life with um, and, and model in certain instances, as well as being a mother. I have no choice but to pour into my son because my mother did that to me. I would be selfish to not give above and beyond what my mother gave to me, to my son, and now my soon to be baby ass. <laughs> so uh, I prioritize it and I have a great team player. <laughs> what is
1: something that you would tell the younger Del today? that will help her become better.
2: Something I would tell the young adult Reese is to embrace life. Um, All the painful things, as well as the good things that I embrace. A lot of the times when I was going through the situation with my mom back and forth to my grandma's house, it was, I would say and I would cry when I did show emotion because I didn't show a lot until I met Amante. When I met my husband, then everything started pouring out. (laughs) That's how I knew he was the one. (laughs) But I was tough. You know, I didn't show a lot of emotion. But one thing I did struggle with was why me? Like, I used to ask God, why me, Lord? Why I got to go through all of this? Why I got to be the one to lose my mom? Why her? Why? Why, why, why? Why me? I don't want to be the one that has to go through this. Place this burden on somebody else. It's I'm I'm sad. I'm struggling. We struggling. I can't afford this. I I can't go here. I don't have my mom for this. <clears throat> I don't have a dad showing up at my event. I don't have my mom showing up at my cotillion, my Delta Gems cotillion. But I have family, and so I would tell the younger me to look at the things that you do have, embrace those, and be proud of, them. Rather it is you know, that one auntie that's always there, be proud of her. <laughs> that one uncle who's always there or whoever, the family that you have that's always supporting you, embrace that love heart and don't question God because you have a purpose in life and in due time, all the hell you went through will reveal itself as, a catalyst and, a, and and as a foundational stepping stone to make you strong. You'll see that, damn, all of that happened for this reason right here, this moment right here, when whatever I know something's coming in the future because I'm more hopeful now. I didn't have as much hope before. I just wanted to make it out, and I just wanted to get whatever degree and make it out. But not hopeful. I know that there's no way in hell God put me through all of that to not use me for something so big. And so rather than why me, it's a matter of, okay, Lord, I'll be patient. I'll wait. <laughs> I'll see what you want next. I'll see what, what who, who am I going to bless because of the hell that you sustained me through. I'll wait and I'll see and I'll, I'll use it for your glory. And so that's what I tell the young me. Just be patient because there's a purpose at the end of all of this. Amen. I agree with me. Mean, it shows the process is sometimes you
0: have to wait. You know, go through those hardships, no adversity in order to get to, that, to the, the, the end of the road uh, to get through your, your struggle. Because um, mm-hmm. there's always a story in your struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're going to close the show now. Thank you. We, we appreciate having you on the show. We appreciate the advice. And you know, just for being transparent, you know, you didn't you didn't mention your little quote that you said. transparency, yeah, transparency
2: saves lives. Saves
0: lives, and we appreciate you <laughs> for, being, tra- for trans- being transparent. But what would you, you know, what's the last word you want to leave with the people? You know, someone out there who may who may be losing a parent right now, or yeah. someone who's applying for law school, someone who's thinking about getting married and doesn't have the support. They just, they just like, I don't think we should do it. We're broke. You know, like what? Yeah.
2: What advice would you be with the people? (laughs) Yeah, because we heard a lot of that. Why are y'all getting married so young? I would say love is everything, you know, and love and positivity is everything. If you love yourself, you'll have confidence in yourself and it'll help you stay positive. If you stay positive about everything, there's nothing that you can't, there's nothing you can't do. And so that would be my advice, you know, in every way that you can, choose love and give love. And I mean that whether it's for yourself or to anybody else, choose love and stay positive about your decisions. If you decided on something, stand on that, stand in positivity and push forward because God will always bring you through and he'll always make a way. This concludes
0: episode seven of the process. I want to send a special thank you to my queen, my wife for joining us and being transparent. Uh, if you could, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and also to like us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you. they chanting, trust the, trust the process. Trust the process. Trust the process.
1: I think the main thing for me was trying to decide on who am I and, like, what I want Oftentimes I think about like my legacy and like the mark that I want to leave, not only on the industry, but the effect that I want to leave on people. Being a whole human being, going through my obstacles, going through the things that I'm going through and not to only broadcast these things, but for it to inspire change.